Good afternoon, and thanks for joining me today. We're talking about New Jersey workers' compensation, my favorite topic in the whole world. So thanks for joining in. Uh, if you're new, thanks for joining us in the new year. Maybe this is part of your New Year's resolution to learn a little more about New Jersey workers' compensation. Uh, this is completely live and interactive, so please uh, jump in with questions, comments, and concerns, and I love to try to address them uh, typically at the end of the presentation, but I can see your questions on my dashboard here as they pop in. So thanks for joining me today, uh, January 8th. Our topic today is going to be talking about New Jersey compensability, investigations, how average weekly wage is established, and of course, reopeners, the bane of our existence in New Jersey. Uh, before we jump into today's topic, I always like to remind everyone of who we are and what we do. Uh, so what's our vision and values? Our firm vision is to be your go-to defense attorneys in New Jersey. Uh, we want to defend you, and we also want to create the best place for our teammates to work. Uh, we are 51 attorneys and about 100 staff in total, and we're all litigators. Every attorney here goes to court, argues, uh, has to stand on their feet, uh, cross-examine witnesses, make arguments, take appeals. Uh, that's who we are, and that's who we want to uh, be, and that's the people that we want to serve here as our teammates. Our mission is to help you take control and stay in control of your New Jersey workers' compensation case. Um, we want you to be in the driver's seat, and that's oftentimes not so easy uh, because of the jurisdiction and the rules. Uh, we are defined by our values, which are creativity, advocacy, professionalism, and service. Creativity, thinking outside the box, bringing something new to these cases, uh, and trying to get them moving forward or creating some jeopardy. Being your advocates. We're not just here to not win or not lose. We're here to actually win cases. Of course, the limit to our aggressiveness will be uh, our professional concerns, the rules of professional conduct, and our ethical issues. But our goal here is to serve. Um, we know uh, that without clients, attorneys are merely Ronin, or maybe even worse than that, law professors. And our job here is to keep you informed about what's going on in your case and bring decisions to you. Our goal is to create leverage or jeopardy that results in you getting to make decisions as to how you want your cases to move forward. Some other ways to learn here, we do publish handbooks, which you can download from our website. We've got four podcasts that we issue every single month. Uh, our podcast called Third Fridays, which surprisingly enough is released on the third Friday of each month, um, is really a, a higher level or, or a, a second sort of a 201 level, I would call it. Look at some of these issues. So if you're interested in that, uh, please uh, check that out. I set aside about 45 minutes uh, for these presentations. Please ask questions. I promise you it makes it so much more fun if you ask questions. Uh, my goal is to answer your questions as best I can. I never want to embarrass anyone, so I'm only going to say your first name, and then I will read your question out loud so that everybody at home can hear your question, and then I'll answer it to the best of my ability. So it doesn't have to be on today's topic, so it's any topic in workers' compensation that you want to throw at me. I'm happy to answer those questions. And if you're ever sitting there like, oh, I shouldn't ask that question. It's too elementary. I really should know this. Don't feel bad. I'm sure there's someone else who's sitting out there, and we have a lot of people out there um, who's probably wishing that uh, 
they had asked that question or someone had asked that question. Uh, finally, these are all recorded and they're available on both our website and also as podcasts later. Uh, there is something exciting I want to bring up to you, uh, which is at the end of this month, we are doing a New York Workers' Compensation 101 class. Uh, this is really a soup to nuts, everything you need to know about New York Workers' Comp. Um, it is 11 hours of courses. It is CLE accredited, meaning the New York State um, Continuing Legal Education Board has accredited this for both in-person or remote uh, education. So if you're interested in that and need the CLE credit, and again, this is designed pr primarily for attorneys, but it's also uh, really useful for risk managers and adjusters and other kinds of claims professionals, uh, it is over four days. It is 11 classes, 11 hours. Uh, this, again, can be done remotely. The registration QR code is up on your screen right now. You can take a screenshot of that or just flip it over to someone who might want to go. And also, you're welcome to come and um, take the class here in our office. Uh, we just built out a 5,000-square-foot training center that can accommodate 170 people. We've got about 30 registered so far, so we've got plenty of room. If you're interested in coming to headquarters in Paramus, New Jersey, we're right next door to a Holiday Inn. If you want to stay for a couple of days, we have extra offices you could use um, for hotel offices if you need that. So anyway, let us know uh, if you're interested, but you're absolutely welcome. So today's presentation is on New Jersey acceptance or denial of cases. We're going to talk about how cases are investigated, what are the methods, uh, what is average weekly wage, and how do we dispute reopeners or challenge them. And as we discuss these topics, my goal is to connect all of these topics and actions to our mission, which is staying in control of the New Jersey claim and deriving that claim to closure. Our job, my job, the job of defense is to present you with opportunities and options. We need to create jeopardy and leverage for the other side that brings them to the table. And then I need to come to you, the client, and say, hey, We've got this opportunity to do this thing. Do you want to do it? Right? That's what we're supposed to be doing for you. Um, other, you know, just telling you what's happening in your cases. You know, I'm not a journalist. Okay. I'm not here to just summarize things. I'm here to create actions and opportunities for you. That's what we do. So as we go through today's presentation, just think of it. That's Greg's lens. That's Greg's thesis. That's Greg's mindset. That's what he's coming to these cases with every day. All right. Your first choice. Should I accept or deny this case? And what happens if I accept it? What happens if I deny it? What are the upsides and the downsides to each? Uh, what should I be doing, Greg? So let's talk with some lingo about New Jersey. So the formal litigation of a case begins with the injured worker filing what's called a claim petition. And that's why they're called or referred to as petitioners. If you call them a claimant in New Jersey, uh, someone will say, that's weird. How come you're using that term? Even though the word Claimant is found throughout the New Jersey statute. Uh, judges and opposing priorities always call them petitioners. And because we file a responsive pleading to the claim petition, we, the employer or carrier, are usually referred to as the respondent. Why? I don't know. I think it's just a Jersey thing. So we're the respondent. Um, now, some basics. Uh, there is no required specific claim petition, right? A claim petition in New Jersey could be written on the back of a cocktail napkin. Nobody cares. They actually, the claim petitions that are signed by the claimant are not even filed with the courts. That's why. Uh, most are filed electronically by filling out a form. 
Same thing with the answering statement. An answering statement must be filed within 30 days of the filing of a formal claim petition. Sometimes cases begin with a motion being filed and a motion being filed by the claimant, by the petitioner, for medical or temporary disability benefits. Uh, when that happens, we don't get the normal 20 days to answer a motion for men and temp. Instead, we get the full 30 days that we would normally be afforded to file an answer to the overall case. So what happens if we don't file our answers in time? Well, the petitioner can then file a motion for default, and if that is granted by the judge, our defenses can be stripped or our proofs can be limited or both. In practice though, and I've been at this for 20 years, I don't think I've ever seen a client get defaulted. A default is extremely rare and that's because two things. One, if you're defaulted, you have an automatic appeal and you could also of course move before the judge that defaulted you for reconsideration. But in general, um, uh, opposing counsel, uh, if you contact them and say, wait a second, why are you doing this? We are gonna file an answer, we're just doing our investigation. Most times will uh, allow you to cure the default or they will withdraw the motion for default. And that's the first and probably the most important lesson I can give you about New Jersey workers' compensation, which is it is still like an old boy network, a very civil practice. Uh, it is not that cutthroat and generally people are trying to work things out with the opposing parties. And were that nearest to your benefit, that's great and useful. Of course, it doesn't mean that everything is a compromise or everything you have to um, choose to uh, you know, give up uh, one of your rights. But just understand that this is a jurisdiction where compromise is going to be expected and you will often get many courtesies from the other party. So just be mindful about that in your overall handling of these cases. Now, when you're just making your decision about whether you accept or deny a case, let's be thoughtful about why. You're accepting a case because you have no legal or factual reason to oppose it. Uh, you still have great defenses in your case, even if you accept it, right? So accepting a case doesn't mean you give up and whatever the plaintiff wants, they get. Accepting a case says, look, I'm, I'm accepting that you have a valid opportunity or right to claim workers' compensation benefits, but you still have uh, your defenses preserved as to the nature and extent of temporary disability, the need for any medical care, and the amount of any permanent impairment that the person may ultimately have, right? Just because you accept a case doesn't mean you have to, you're gonna be, um, sorry, responsible for or liable for additional things down the road. Now, when do you deny a case? Well, you should deny a case if you have a legal or factual basis to deny it. We also will typically deny a case when there are real concerns about the compensability or the circumstances of the loss, and we just need more time to investigate the case more fully. Now, interestingly, in this jurisdiction, you can always deny a case and then later change your position to accept it, and there really is not going to be any um, impact or prejudice on your decision to do that. Uh, also, you can do the opposite. You can accept a case, treat it as compensable, uh, take the benefit of that in this jurisdiction, which in this jurisdiction, the benefit accepting a case is you get to control and direct medical in that case, and then later deny or dispute the case and say, wait a second, we did treat this as compensable, good on us, we were being such nice people, but now we've done more investigation, we've looked into the priors, we've, we now recognize that 
This is the ninth time that you've claimed that you had a left shoulder injury. And for that reason, we are now changing our position. And now we're going to dispute this case and ask you to be put forward your proofs as to why this should be an accepted compensable case. So you can do that. You can change. And interestingly, in this jurisdiction, you can change your position on compensability right up until the very first date of testimony is taken. And it says that literally in the statute. So it's, it's until the petitioner or the claimant gets on the stand and starts to testify, typically, you can change your position uh, or amend your position on acceptance or denial of the claim. Now, practically, the way this is done is the answering statement includes a specific box that you check either yes or no, which controls whether or not you are accepting or denying the case. Um, now, again, an accepted case can later be challenged or controverted, no problem, and you always have that opportunity to do that until the first witness testifies. So let's look at some denial reasons or some litigation reasons to dis deny or dispute a case that are unique to New Jersey. So what's the statute of limitations in New Jersey? The statute in New Jersey is two years from the date of loss or from the date of last payment of compensation, whichever is later. Okay. Now that's important for you to recognize. That's a little dangerous. Uh, if you're a wonderful risk professional and you get a call from claimant's attorney and they say, hello, wonderful person. Um, you remember this guy, uh, so-and-so got injured working for so-and-so. Well, he wants to go back to the doctor just once uh, to get himself checked out again. Um, you remember you sent him to the doctor three times and the doctor MMI'd him, maximum medical improvement in him and sent him back to work. You remember that guy, right? He just wants to go back to the doctor. Be cautious about requests like that because you may be by agreeing to send them back for medical care and then paying that medical bill, you may be restarting the statute of limitations in that case. So be thoughtful about that. Uh, in an occupational exposure claim, which the person alleges that a cumulative exposure to a uh, some kind of irritant or contaminant or cumulative repetitive orthopedic motion causes a occupational disease or disability, the statute of limitations is two years from the date the employee knew or should have known about their condition and their relationship to the employment. Uh, New Jersey also has some very interesting notice uh, uh, notice requirements. Like you're going to look at this slide and I'm going to read it because it's, it's really there's three different notice statutes in New Jersey. Uh, so the first one says that the employee must provide notice of affirmative notice, okay, within 14 days of the accident. Or notice is valid if the employer has constructive notice within 30 days. Uh, what's constructive notice, by the way? It just means the employer knew or should have known about the loss. For example, if the claimant is taken away from your work site in an ambulance and the employer is present, the employer is deemed to have constructive notice of that circumstance. Um, so just be mindful that that's what constructive means. But then there's a third thing, a third provision, which says as long as notice is provided within 90 days, though, and the employer can't show any prejudice, then it's neither 14 or 30 days, right? So isn't this interesting to have three different specific timelines in your notice statutes? Uh, and the first one is they have to give affirmative notice. That's written notice within 14 days of the accident. Well, unless the employer... Uh, gets constructive notice within 30 days, and that could be something like you got hit with a medical bill or you got a phone call from someone else who told you maybe your employee was injured. But if you got neither of those uh, types of notice, well, as long as some kind of notice is provided to you within 90 days, then, and you can't show that you've been prejudiced, 
then uh, the, the statute says that's fine, that, that's valid notice. I think in those circumstances, you should be arguing for prejudice because if you don't have knowledge of a injury or an accident, what kind of like records or investigation are you going to be able to conduct 90 days after the fact, right? So just be mindful. Uh, notice is a little bit loosey-goosey in this state, and we should be uh, really on top of uh, our cases uh, so that we don't have to rely on this as a defense. It's not a strong defense. Another unique defense is there are some short notice requirements for hernia claims. Hernia claims must be reported within 48 hours of the occurrence, um, but of course Sundays, Saturdays, and holidays are excluded. But be mindful of this one, um, and that's because you have so many injuries that occur on Monday morning, and if the employee comes to work and goes, oh, I hurt my back last week, and it, it became apparent over the weekend I had this hernia, those are cases you probably should be disputing while you look into those cases. All right, let's turn next to investigations and what kind of investigation we want to conduct in determining compensability in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. Well, I could tell you, employer-provided materials are generally going to be our strongest documents. So, like, what's in the personnel file? Uh, what do we know about this claimant? I'm always interested in the claimant who gets injured at work right after they asked for a 30-day leave to go visit a relative or something that's been denied, right? Of course, those are ones we're going to have red flags and be suspicious of. Um, we're also going to look to any witness statements. You know, was an incident report obtained? Was there any kind of reporting done? Like, what information do we know about the loss? Well, the person in the best position to obtain that is generally the employer. Uh, the next thing we're going to look to is a wage statement. Now, unlike other states, you're not going to be bogged down filing all sorts of uh, court-required forms in New Jersey. In fact, there are none, zero. The only exception to that is the first report of injury, which if, by the way, if you don't file it, you get a $15 fine. So that's it. Uh, so there are no specific court-required filings or forms. So things like a wage statement uh, that you're going to request from the employer could look like anything. It could look like a payroll. It could look like a spreadsheet. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be on a wage statement form. Now, generally speaking, as soon as the case is referred to me, I'm going to start reaching out to the employer to get gather some of this information. Uh, and generally, though, I'm going to talk to you first, the risk professional, before I do that. Um, but in general, I want to make those contacts early. I want to start collecting my data. What are we going to look at? Well, again, first report of injury. And I also want to see who filled out the first report of injury. Any accident or injury reports. Uh, let's take a look at those. And the reason we want to look at those is because in this jurisdiction, if opposing counsel in the workers' compensation quest case requests this information from me, I have to turn it over to them. I have to turn over the incident report, an accident report, the personnel file, and any wage information I've obtained. Also, I have to allow opposing counsel to visit the premise. Now, that doesn't mean they're visiting the premise unaccompanied, right? I'm going to be with you and probably the employer to do this, but they can come and do a site inspection if that's a valid or valuable part of their being able to present their case. Now, in general, um, that is not done. The only context which we typically see a premises inspection where the claimant's attorney comes and visits the location is because they are anticipating filing a third-party lawsuit, a civil suit, either against maybe the premises owner, maintainer, um, the 
product that damaged or injured the employee, you know, typically a product's liability inspection could occur. So it's relatively rare, but there isn't a year that goes by that we don't attend to these. So just be mindful that's something that could be part of the investigation conducted by a claimant's attorney. Now, the other thing that we're going to look to is the claimant's prior claims history. And unlike other jurisdictions, uh, the Division of Workers' Compensation in New Jersey maintains a fully searchable docketing system that shows prior unrelated cases for the claimant that we can get to without needing a HIPAA release or any other type of release. So it's pretty interesting that if we're defending a case filed by a petitioner in a New Jersey workers' compensation action, the court automatically grants us access to any other case that's been filed by that uh, petitioner against any prior employer, which, of course, is incredibly useful for us in looking into uh, their prior medical conditions or incidents. We're also going to expect that the... Um, client, the carrier, the employer, is going to provide us with a um, insurance services organization claims index bureau report, you know, that uh, CIB report or ISO reports they're sometimes called uh, to so that we can look at any other jurisdiction, extra jurisdictional claims filed by the claimant. But very interesting and very useful in this jurisdiction that we automatically get access into all of their other prior workers' compensation claims. All right. Next Foundational issue is what is the petitioner's correct average weekly wage and how do we figure this out? Well, it's defined in the statute, section 37, which says that the court is authorized to look back 26 weeks and 26 weeks, essentially six months. And the court is supposed to look back that period of time and use that period of time to draw up an average weekly wage, which is going to be created by way of straight division straight division. Uh, what that means is the judge is empowered to look at all of the wages that were paid to the petitioner during that 26-week period, divide it by the amount of weeks worked in that period, and come up with a 26-week average weekly wage. Now, please be mindful that weeks where the claimant earned zero dollars will uh, be the source of argument as to why those should be excluded. Um, and that's something that, you know, you can take on a case-by-case -case, um, basis. Now, there are some other factors that will increase or decrease the pre-injury wage. Are we paying the person room and board? And this will come up, particularly in the agricultural context in this jurisdiction, where we do have migrant workers that come to New Jersey for certain harvests. And they are paid or provided some room and board stipends. So where that amount is known, that would certainly be part of their average weekly wage. Where it is not known, um, that is subject to being compromised on, or uh, you can argue for the minimum, which is $25 per week. Now, tips and gratuities. Um, cash tips don't count in this jurisdiction. Sorry, if you're not reporting cash tips uh, to the federal government and paying taxes on it, then you cannot turn around and then workers' compensation court claim that you should be receiving an average weekly wage benefit based on that amount that you're not reporting. Now, wages and salary mean the same thing in our statute. And again, our argument has been it's always acceptable to take the 26 weeks of wages and simply divide it by 26. The challenge, though, unfortunately, is where you have hourly workers 
there is a section of the statute which says that hourly workers should take the rate and multiply it by the usual number of hours in the ordinary day in the character of the work involved. Okay, so essentially what they're what they're trying to do is come up with a hypothetical average weekly wage. And again, this is simply fundamentally fair, uh, but we have to take into account the circumstances of our particular case. Um, we have to first determine what is the customary number of days worked. If no one in this facility or for this employer works more than three days a week, it certainly would be unfair to calculate an average weekly wage for an hourly worker based on an alleged five days of work. It just doesn't exist. So to arrive at an average weekly wage for hourly workers, we're really going to have to take into consideration, hey, what were they contracted to earn? What were they expecting to earn? What did they actually work? And what did the similar workers in that location also earn? Now, practically, uh, that type of analysis is rarely done. Practically speaking, for the part-time worker or average or, sorry, hourly worker, practically speaking, we're usually just going to go back, take 26 weeks of wages, uh, use the weeks that they actually earn income, and use those as the basis for coming up with an average weekly wage. Again, this is where it can get a little tricky in this jurisdiction, particularly because uh, the judge's opinions will vary, uh, but this is a moment for us to refocus the courts back on Section 37 and back on the statute, which um, contains these definitions. All right, let's move on to my fourth topic and my most fun topic, which is reopeners. Reopeners are the bane of existence in New Jersey. I've had I've talked to carriers before who said, like, Greg, I'll write in 49 states, but I won't write in New Jersey because of the long tail created by New Jersey's crazy reopener statute. Section 27 of the statute allows for what's called a, quote, application to review or modify a formal award, close quote. What does that mean? It means the claimant or the petitioner already receives an amount of compensation for their alleged permanent residual disability. Again, they've already been adjudged or determined to have a permanent residual disability. And this doesn't matter whether it's an order following a trial or a settlement or compromise between the parties. The only way to resolve the case in New Jersey is for an order approving a settlement or an order in judgment to be entered by a workers' compensation law judge. So once that's happened, the law says, guess what? The claimant can come back and argue that the amount of the settlement wasn't enough and that they are due additional compensation. Or they can come back and argue, hey, judge, even though you listened to the proofs and you took testimony and you had experts testify about my permanent residual disability, you're wrong. My permanent residual disability is actually higher than what you had judged it to be, and I'm due more money. Okay? So this section of the statute authorizes what we call a reopener. Now, this is the instance where the burden shifts. Normally, uh, the burden is on the employer to show that the claimant's not disabled. But in this circumstance, under Section 27, the claimant, in order to recover additional amounts, has to prove that their condition has, quote, materially worsened, close quote. In other words, it's up to the claimant to demonstrate some type of significant increase in their overall disability. Just because they make the claim doesn't mean they actually prevail. And that's because we can serve very specific discovery on the claimants. Uh, for example, we can serve interrogatories on them that ask them to prove and demonstrate to us uh, through objective medical 
that their condition has actually gotten worse or their disability has increased. Right, so we can shift this burden over onto them. Um, in general, there are no proofs. In general, it's simply the claimant saying, I claim to be worse, now give me more money. Here's my handout, okay? Uh, in general, we should have protected against the opportunity for this reopener much earlier in the case. And the best time to protect against the opportunity for a reopener is when you are settling or compromising the prior case. And that's because when you are settling or compromising the prior case, you're going to want to say things on the record like, uh, dear claimant, you were, a, you were examined by Dr. So-and-so on your own behalf, and you paid that doctor to provide an opinion as to your permanent residual disability. Yes, I did. And you were honest and truthful with them. Yes, I was. And you told them all of your complaints. Yes, I did. And all your complaints are, and here's, here's where I would go through and have them list all of their complaints that they gave to their examining physician and say, and your complaints are still that bad today, correct? Yes. And then whatever the settlement is or the resolution is, we put that through in the record. And the reason I go through that exercise and I recommend it highly is because then when the claimant tries to reopen their case and they said, I'm much worse than I was at the time of the prior order, I can point to their specific complaints they made to their evaluating physician, which by the way, are going to be far in excess of any compromise settlement that we have uh, reached uh, amicably between the parties. And I want to be able to do that and point say, hey, how do you claim that you're actually worse than what you told your doctor or less what they wrote down in their report when they said that it was a miracle you could barely get into their office and you're such a brave claimant and so stoic, you're, you're a tough soldier that you could even walk in there. I mean, how do you become more disabled than totally disabled as you were uh, claiming to be back then, right? And that's a very compelling way of really removing the exposure or reducing that future exposure in case that case comes up for reopener. And now the reason this is important is because when there is a reopener, 99% of the time we want to settle these pursuant to section 20, and that would be a lump sum dismissal of the case. Uh, so generally speaking, when the, a reopener claim is brought, when the claimant comes back to the court and says, hey, you've already adjudged or we've already compromised the amount of my permanent residual disability, but look, now I've gotten worse. Give me more money. Generally speaking, you're going to want to resolve that issue, the reopener issue, by way of a lump sum dismissal, and that's what Section 20 allows us to do. So some best practices on reopeners. The first thing I'll tell you is that when a claimant files a reopener claim with you, we never or hardly ever, I should say, recommend sending the claimant back to their prior treating physician. What could be the point of that? Again, the burden now is on the claimant to demonstrate that their condition has worsened. So the only doctor I'm going to ever send them to voluntarily is my own IME doctor, who I'm going to expect is going to say, wait a second, Greg, I just examined this person a year and a half ago. Nothing's changed. They, they've had no interim medical care. Why would I set myself up by sending them to a physician who might recommend additional interim care? It doesn't seem valuable to me. And by the way, let's also think about where we are in a, in a reopener case. These are positional cases just about money and just because the statute allows it. So before you say, wait a second, Greg, you're getting a little too litigious here. Uh, what about the, I'll stop you right there. Uh, reopener cases are not about fundamental fairness. In fact, there's very little integrity to the filing of these cases. They really are just about, hey, there's an opportunity in the statute to file for it and get some additional free money for doing literally nothing. 
right? So we want to push back on that. The other thing we're going to press for in a reopener case is all discovery, forcing the claimant to actually respond to our demand for interrogatories and filing motions to compel that discovery. And the reason we're going to do that is because it's really hard for the claimant to actually demonstrate that there is any material worsening. Basically, they have to come to the court and say, look, if there's, look at all this interim medical care I've got. Look at all these new conditions that I've developed. Look at how much more disabled I am. And they really can't do that in general. Um, so our position is, no, only after they respond to our discovery demands, then we think the best practice is send them back to the last defense independent medical evaluator. That's going to set you up for your best possible defensive reopener. And by the way, 99% of reopeners should settle by way of a minimal nuisance value section 20 lump sum dismissal. Okay, they should not be subject to further reopeners down the road. All right, so some takeaways from today's presentation as I draw to a close here. Uh, first, investigating cases and facts are the big drivers uh, that are the key to us in whether or not we're going to accept or deny a case. Please be mindful that the average weekly wage is a place to spend some time, effort, blood, and treasure. Make sure we get this right because we want to make sure that we're not giving the claimant an opportunity to uh, generate a, additional exposure, a bigger award for themselves by a misstatement as to what the correct average weekly wage is. The last admonition I'd give you is be cautious around reopener claims. We don't treat them like regular cases here. I treat them uh, like what they are. Uh, there are claims that generally lack integrity. They're simply a money grab, and they need to be put down with great prejudice. All right, let's move into some questions and answers. I'm hoping that some of the things I talked about today um, did trigger um, uh, some questions here. I got my first question here, which is uh, comes from Karen, who says, Greg, we normally schedule need for treatments with Dr. Canario. Would that be considered a benefit since it is couched as a need for treatment for extending the statute of limitations? The answer is no. Actually, that is an exception to extending the statute of limitations. Uh, sending someone to an expert examination for the purposes of determining permanency or the need for further care is not considered medical care under the statute. And in fact, there is case law that says that. Um, the case law says that uh, the carrier sending the claimant to an expert does not extend the statute of limitations for the purposes of filing another reopener. So that's an important distinction. And that's another, by the way, strong reason uh, not to send the claimant to a treating physician in that context. Um, because you don't want to, again, you don't want to restart a statute of limitations. So thank you for that question. And not seeing any other questions, I'm going to tell you, uh, thanks for joining me today. It was very fun to lead you through this discussion. Uh, very, I, I hope everyone has a great and happy new year, and I can't wait to see you at next month's presentation. Have a great week, everybody, and have a great year.